you'll take your uh, copy of God's Word with me now, and uh, I want to invite you to turn uh, to 1 Timothy. And as you do, let me just take opportunity to thank you. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be with you uh, again. Uh, we woke up this morning, felt very much at home for a number of reasons, uh, but uh, it was actually colder here than it was uh, just south of Chicago, where we live in Indiana now. So that was good of you to uh, make us feel welcome in that way as well. Um, it's, it's a joy. It's always been a joy uh, and a privilege uh, to, to share time and fellowship with you uh, here. Uh, we do uh, miss uh, the South in so many ways, uh, so it's always good to return uh, back here uh, and to, uh, to share uh, in that. Uh, we rejoice that the Lord has given us such rich and full friendships here. Uh, and uh, you guys really do have a very special uh, place in our hearts here, so we, we thank you again. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy Three, beginning in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths on each of our hearts this morning. And before I begin, let's pray uh, again together. Uh, Father, we ask now that uh, your word would go forth, and that your truth uh, would uh, be abundantly clear, and that you would uh, bless to our hearing this morning uh, the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something unique about truth, is there not? Uh, it has to be proclaimed. It can't be hidden or covered up, at least not for very long. The truth sets us free. And as we look at 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy, of course, is Paul's letter to Timothy. Paul uh, has uh, planted and established this church in Ephesus. Uh, like all of the churches that Paul planted, like all churches uh, the world round. There are problems, there are difficulties, there's sin in uh, and amongst the people of God. And Paul writes, so then Paul leaves Ephesus. He sends his disciple Timothy there to pastor this church, to help it along, to cause it to grow. 
And so uh, he's looking back and writing to Timothy now and giving him instruction and direction. And you can see in verse 14 here that uh, it's his desire to come. Uh, but uh, as Paul, Paul must have lived a really difficult life. We know that uh, for a fact from uh, elsewhere in, in Scripture. It says, though he's anticipating, I, I, I might be delayed. And he says, verse 15, um, if I delay, that you might know the truth in how to behave and how to act and how to build up and raise up this church there in Ephesus. And so the first thing that he gives him here is this, what, what we do with truth. He says that this truth of God and God's word, it, it must be confessed and Profess, that is, confessed together, as we have done already here. Um, and it must be proclaimed. We cannot keep silent. We cannot keep this truth to ourselves. It must go out. And so he gives uh, Timothy here, and he gives the Ephesian church, and he gives Roebuck Presbyterian Church this morning this uh, uh, what most commentators think is a, a portion uh, of uh, a hymn here, or quite possibly uh, an older confession of faith. You see that there. It's even in our English versions indented for us so that we can see that. But, but six stanzas here that reveal to us essential truths, essential truths about what... About politics? No, thankfully. About changing social norms? No, it's not that either. It's not even the U.S. Constitution, as much as we love the U.S. Constitution. Six stanzas of truth about Jesus Christ himself. You see that there. And even as you look at it, 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 you can see, even in our English translation, in the Greek, it's even more abundantly clear that these truths were made and written down so that they might be proclaimed or even sung. This uh, is so that we can have clarity and direction amidst the uproar, amidst all the noise, against all the changing social norms and trends, the debauchery, the sin that distracts us so much. I haven't had a conversation, I was just talking with a friend uh, about this the other day, I haven't had a conversation uh, about the world, about society in a really long time that, handed, that, that hasn't ended with me saying something like, God help us, or heaven help us, or come Lord Jesus, right? I mean, you know what I mean? It's a crazy world we live in, and it doesn't seem to be getting any more sane anytime soon, at least from my predictions, as poor as those may be. But amidst all this uproar and change and craziness in the world, 
We can have sanity. We can have peace. How? By knowing the truth that God has given us. That's exactly what these professions and confessions are for. It's nice to be uh, preaching in a church that uh, I don't preach in often because I can use uh, illustrations that I've used before. They're new to you. They're going to be old to my kids, but hang with me here, guys. It's, I think, a pretty good illustration. B.B. Uh, Warfield, years ago, uh, wrote just a very short little article that appears, I think, in volume 10 of his collected works, Towards the end, um, it's called, uh, What is the Indelible Mark of the Westminster Shorter Catechism? And those of you, I'm sure, know that the Westminster Shorter Catechism is the children's version of a much larger confession of faith known as the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in the 1640s in England. What is the indelible mark of the Shorter Catechism, Warfield writes? He says, we have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of mind, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he had passed, he turned to look back at him only to find the stranger had done the same. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Why, that was just what I was thinking of you was the rejoinder. Warfield goes on to say, it is worthwhile to be a shorter catechism boy. They grow to be men, and better than that, they are exceedingly apt to grow to be men of God, so apt that we cannot afford to have them miss the chance of it. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's there, in other words, to help us through times of great unrest, through times of uncertainty and great confusion that I'm afraid we are in the midst of right now as a country, as a society. God help us is the rejoinder that comes so much from me. God has helped us. He has given us the tools. He has given us the means by which to not lose our minds and not lose our way through the midst of the uncertainty and the changing of our society. Here he has given us six stanzas to do just that. 
you'll see them right there. I mean, uh, it, it even is there. I mean, I, I, I'm prone to even ask you, uh, respond with me. Christian, what, are, uh, what do you believe? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Paul says that this indeed, verse 16 at the beginning, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Now at first this may seem like this is what we are to be doing, but, but I, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here when he talks about godliness. What Paul is talking about here is the mystery of God's plan for our salvation. It's hard in English and in our daily talk. We use the word mystery a, a, a lot like uh, we uh, would think of sort of a, a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Use an illustration uh, that my kids have taught me. Um, Scooby-Doo, right? At the end of Scooby-Doo episodes, and, and they've gotten worse, I'm afraid. The, the modern ones are just not as good as the ones that that, that were out when we were kids. Um, but right, there's that, that great reveal at the end, right? Uh, Fred rips off the mask of somebody and the mystery's solved and oh, oh, it was him all along, the bank teller or, or whatever. Um, this is not the way the Bible often uses the word mystery. In fact, it's not at all the way the Bible uses mystery. It's, it's not like a mystery is, is figured out, but rather it's something that has long been hidden that is now revealed to us. That's what the Bible means when it talks about a mystery and the mystery of godliness here in verse 16. Uh, David McLeod uh, gives, uh, a, a, I think, a fairly good illustration of this. He says that in London's Trafalgar Square, which maybe some of you have been there, uh, there's a great uh, statue of Admiral Lord uh, uh, Horatio Nelson. It's known as Nelson's Column. It's a 19 and a half foot statue that sits atop a 150 foot granite column that was built in 1843. You can go on Google, not now, but later, and, and even look this up. Uh, it, it's a massive, uh, massive monument to one of England's greatest war heroes. Um, but this statue, and with the, the way that fog often rolls in London, uh, it's very hard to see. Apparently in 1948, there was an exhibition in London where they placed an exact replica of the statue 150 feet above the city down at eye level. And all of a sudden, the people of London could look at this statue and see, oh, indeed. Uh, his facial features were such. We had only seen it from a distance before, but now it's so much clearer. This is kind of the idea that Paul has here, that, that we've known our salvation has been coming 
through a man. It's actually been very, very specific all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And building throughout the entire canon of the Old Testament. But now he says, in this person of Jesus Christ, we now see it so much more clearly. It's revealed to us even more the greatness of this salvation that God has worked for us through his Son. Or to put it in the words of John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This truth of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's salvation for us, full and free, is essential to our salvation and therefore must be confessed and professed on a regular basis, constantly, on a daily basis. First of all, to ourselves, you have to preach the gospel to yourself daily but also be proclaiming it in your life and in your words throughout the course of your day and throughout the course of our lives. That's the second thing we see here. First of all, truth has to be confessed. Secondly, truth has to be lived out. If we go back up to the top of uh, this passage, verse 14, Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you now so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church of the living God. Verses 14 and 15 show us that the truth can't just be something in our heads. It has to be lived out as one commentator says what needs to be stressed is that uh, is not uh, that a shallow uh, moralistic understanding of conduct yourselves would be lived out it needs to be resisted in other words it's not just a set of rules a checklist that we go down each and every single day if we go back to chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, uh, verses 12 and following, uh, he talks about this. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service through, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is Paul's testimony, if you know Paul's writing throughout the course of his writings in the New Testament. This is the faith that Paul lived out before the congregations that he planted and served. 
This is the testimony of Paul's life that, that once he was an insolent man. Right? It, it doesn't bode well for him. His past, I, I mean, look at some of the achievements that Paul uh, accomplished in his life. He was great among the people of God up until that point. Uh, We would call him uh, today probably a prodigy. Brilliant man, a genius by every definition of genius. And yet, he looks back on that portion of his life with, with great shame. He says, it's all rubbish. It it, it makes no difference. It means nothing compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul is reminded here and reminding us that to live out our faith before God and before man means turning to Christ. It implies a simultaneous turning away from our sins. We can no longer live in our sins. I don't know if it needs, if it bears saying here. But over the last several years, I've been very discouraged by our denomination not being able to say you cannot identify with sin. This is not okay. That you must move on from that. You must turn from your sin and turn to Christ. Turning away from one's previous way of life for which Christ frees and enables you to do. Paul wants Timothy to minister a message that changes lives, not just that confirms the complacent and a presumptuous status quo. Let me say that again. Paul wants Timothy to minister a message that changes lives, not that confirms the complacent and a presumptuous status quo. It's a mouthful. But you get it. Do you see what he's saying here? It takes more than just a moralism. It takes more than just a profession. It takes a life that is transformed and changed and it says, I, I cannot live in sin any longer. I must be freed from it. And only Jesus Christ gives the power and the ability to turn from that. And yes, it takes time. Be patient with yourselves. Be patient with others as this process of turning from sin and turning unto Christ, it does take time. Our sin is deeply ingrained in us. But little by little, more and more, progress is made as we turn from that sin, turning more and more unto Christ. And that's our third and final point, that this truth that must be confessed, this truth that has to be lived out, this truth is Jesus Christ himself. And we see that here in this confession in verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh. We just celebrated that. That's why you have a Christmas tree in your sanctuary. To remind you that that Jesus Christ has come. 
He was born of a virgin, took on human flesh and bones. Why? As we've seen already, it's so that he might live under this law that was given to God's created realm and his creatures, to man, so that Jesus might fulfill the law perfectly. Do you know how good, I mean, this to me is why we call the gospel good news. I think if you asked my mother, I think she would probably tell you that of her three children, I'm probably the one that is the most driven. I'm goal-oriented. I'm always doing and, and have to be doing something, or I'm just not okay. And maybe some of you are, are like that. And so I, I do think I have tendencies towards works righteousness. It has to be earned. It has to be done. And, and yes, this checklist of Christian things that you have to do affirming that, That's not salvation. Salvation is that Jesus came, that Jesus has done it all. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, strive, that we don't uh, uh, look to God's laws the way that we bring glory and honor to God in our lives, but we don't earn anything of our salvation. And that's good news. We can rest in Jesus Christ and his work alone. It's not mine that does it. It's not my work that matters. It's all of Christ's. And we rejoice in that. He was manifested in the flesh. Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit, this second stanza here. What on earth is that talking about? Vindicated by the Spirit is most likely a reference to Romans 1, 4. Romans 1, 4 says this, And Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. If I were to ask you quite literally, Who was it that raised Jesus Christ from the dead? The answer, according to Romans 1.4, is that it was the Spirit of God. It was God the Father's will that his Son would be raised. It's the Spirit of God as the messenger, as the agent, to go and to bring Jesus back to life again from the dead. This is what Paul is talking about here, vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit brings Jesus back to life so that we can see in Jesus' resurrection that God the Father was pleased with the work that Jesus had done. And you see how this is also good news. It's the good news getting better and better. Jesus comes, takes on human flesh so that he might live and attain your salvation, your righteousness for you. That we see in his resurrection now that God the Father was pleased with what Jesus had done, the sacrifice that he had made. Had he not been pleased, he never would have sent the Holy Spirit to vindicate, to bring him back 
to life, we'd still be dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15. Third stanza here, I'm just going to go through these very, very quickly and we'll be done. He was seen by angels. Think of all the times that we see angels present in Jesus' ministry. They come, right? We've just seen this at Christmas time. They come in great number. We don't know how many were in that great angelic choir the night of his birth. But, but many, and I, I don't know how many angels there are. More than one, I think, is the safe uh, assumption, certainly. Um, they come, they, they, they sing at his birth. Why? Because what else can you do? Erupt into songs of praise that now salvation has fully come and been realized here on earth. You almost get the sense, uh, this was one of my takeaways from Christmas this year, you, you almost get the sense like, like, like they, the, the angels are sort of like, like pushing in on the door. Right? They, they, they know that this is coming and there's, there's an exuberance, an excitement. They, they are sort of pushing each other out of the way to get a glimpse at this little baby boy in Bethlehem born to his mother. Seen by angels, they sang at his birth, they ministered to Jesus at the time of his temptation. They're present at the tomb continually proclaiming the majesty of Jesus and his holiness in the heavenly throne rooms. We see them in Isaiah chapter 6 and and elsewhere. Seen by angels, fourthly, proclaimed among the nations. How often do you think about missions during Christmas time? Not that much, I'll be honest. I don't think about it that much during Christmas time. And yet here, this is, this is a very Christmassy passage. Proclaimed among the nations. There we see again this call to proclaim Jesus Christ, proclaim the truth. We are not to be silent about it. And yes, this proclamation cannot be stopped. You realize that? That amid the uproar and the insanity of our times and our day and our society, no matter what is done, no matter what is said, no matter what legislation is passed, the proclamation of the gospel among the nations will never be thwarted because of who Jesus is. Something I must share with you and share it with with great joy you guys were so incredibly gracious to us and to my family when we went overseas uh, uh, to to northern ireland to proclaim the gospel Uh, a friend of mine just recently called me exuberant Uh, and when we left uh, cushendall northern ireland four years ago thought well, that was a good try, good effort. Um, uh, this friend called me uh, somewhat ecstatic. He said, I just spoke to a minister in the presbytery where you were over there. He said, um, 
he called me up and, and couldn't wait to tell me that the Presbytery has approved um, a, a call right now um, of 48,000 pounds to send somebody to Cushendall where you guys were to continue on that work. It's roughly 61,000 US dollars, in case anybody's interested in going. Um, that's a lot of money for an Irish pastor. They're excited about this in that presbytery. They are actively looking and taking steps to send somebody there, not the Gretzingers, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to continue in that work. A work that was started long ago, a work that you participated in, it, it continues on. Praise God for that. There's countless other examples we could give of this, but time does not allow this morning. For, or fifthly, that Jesus Christ was believed on in the world. You see how it's, it's getting better and better? I've shared with you already the, the, the depression, the sadness that comes when you open your newspapers, when you see what's going on in the world. I'm not here today to tell you that it's all going to be okay, that it's all going to go away tomorrow. It's not. But here's the thing, and we've said this already. The gospel cannot be thwarted. People continue to believe on Jesus Christ, both in uh, families, in churches, throughout the world. That this will never be quenched. It will never be stopped. In fact, the more they, they do try to stop it, the more it goes on. Jesus Christ was believed on in the world. And that's why we're here today, isn't it? That you believe this. That at some point in your life, a miracle happened. Miracles still happen today. That your heart of stone was removed and replaced with a heart of flesh. That you now can feel your sin. You, you, you feel the weight of it. It no longer doesn't bother you. It does bother you. It grates on you. That this is what happens. We start to feel the weight of our sin. We start to see that there's nothing we can do in and of our own power to relieve that guilt. That it has to be Jesus Christ coming in human flesh. Dying a death that we deserved. Us being given righteousness that is not our own, but is earned and achieved by Jesus only. This is the miracle that has happened in your life. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, there is no other way to salvation except through him. And then finally, that Jesus Christ was taken up in glory. Now, to most of us, you're thinking, well, this is the ascension. It follows a natural progression. 
But I don't think that's what's being talked about here. Because the ascension of Jesus Christ and the end of the Gospels, the beginning of uh, the book of Acts, as important as the ascension is, is, is not the end. It's nowhere close to the end. Yes, he was taken up in glory. Yes, we do think about that uh, sort of heavenly homecoming, the celebration, the rejoicing, the glory that Jesus received when he returned victorious over the grave and over death. But that's not the full extent of his glory. You know that, and I know that. What he is talking about here is the full glory, I think, that Jesus receives at his second coming. Jesus is coming again. That he will be given ultimate glory, full glory, when he returns again as conquering king before his people that he longs to be with. So that's the challenge to us today. It's a matter of glory. How much glory will you give to Jesus Christ through your life, through your profession, through your words and actions, the way you love one another, the way you love people that are sometimes very different than you. It's a call to us as God's people to go and to live gloriously and to be giving glory to God. I recently, uh, and we'll close with this, was, was really struck by uh, the, the Christian author of, of many years ago by the name of E.M. Bounds. Some of you have maybe heard of him. In some of his writings on prayer, they're, they're very good, very convicting, very helpful And we do a a, a Wednesday night prayer meeting at at our church in Indiana. Uh, I came across this this quote that I, I think is very, very helpful, has been very convicting to me. It goes like this. Uh, Ian Bounds writes, "The, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. And with that, men and and women. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men and women. He does not come on machinery, but he comes to men's hearts. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. So it's a call to us to be glorious as he is glorious, as he has increased in glory, you too must do the same. Putting off sin, turning from that, repenting of your sins, turning to Christ, living for him and giving him all the glory that comes from walking with him. Will you do that this year? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in the work that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, and we would ask that you would continue to sanctify us, making us more like Jesus. 
and enabling us more and more to proclaim to the world that it's his glory and not my own. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are able, let's stand together and sing our hymn of response, hymn number 195, Joy to the World, the Lord is Come.